Well, as they are heading off to class, please understand this doesn't happen every Sunday back there. Though that would be really fun if it did. I think I would want to go to Children's Church every day if that happened. But just to let you know, uh, when, we, uh, when we do our vacation Bible schools every year, they, uh, we actually were blessed to be able to write them ourselves. And we do everything in-house. It's, um, we have the blessing of being able to have very gifted people around us. And what happens is many people will say, well, what's y'all's VBS? What did y'all do? And uh, even this year it happened just a few weeks ago and I was explaining what we were doing. Oh, that's great. Where'd you buy that from? Because typically churches will buy a, a packaged vacation Bible school from a bookstore, Christian bookstore. Uh, there's some, uh, several of different varieties, but I, I just say, well, we, we write our own. Really? How do you do that? And I quickly say, well, I do very little. That's the good part. Uh, we have some very gifted uh, children's ministry gifting. Terry Raboski wrote that drama for us. <laughs> Jessica McCarty. Jessica McCarty wrote the Puppet News Network sketches. And really the, the person who thought of all of this was Hope Roberts. She's the one that made it happen. I'm looking for her. There she is. Hey, Hope. Thank you, Hope. Thank you for the ministry that the Lord birthed in your heart that went forth to all the kids that were up here and more. You are a gift to this church. Thank you so much. It is amazing. You can thank the Lord again. We, we had our daily average, I think, was 170 kids which is our largest vacation Bible school. I don't have a total of how many kids came, even if they just came for one or two days or something like that. But it was a blessing. We had some teachers that withstood a lot because we weren't planning on having, you add three more four or five-year-olds, that makes the dynamic a bit different. <laughs> when but everybody responded so well. We had people that stayed late. We had a different set every single day, and they would come up and put that set up here uh, and tie it off with this fish line. Just awesome, awesome job from everybody, realizing their fears. fears. Right, Gerald? <laughs> well, this, <clears throat> this drama that you saw actually took place over a period of five days. And its intention was, uh, you might have seen or picked up on the Pilgrim's Progress-ishness of the journey. And typically our dramas have that Pilgrim's Progress uh, motif, but this one was Pilgrim's Progress meets Candyland. We just looked at the Candyland game. Ooh, how do we play that? Oh, how can we incorporate that? How do we do this? Uh, and our desire with the dramas, the daily dramas, is to tell the story of the gospel. And we want to do that year after year. It's, it's actually, when you boil it down, it's kind of quite simple, though it takes gifting to, to flesh everything out. The structure of what our dramas are, really the structure of our entire vacation Bible schools, are about the gospel. We want to highlight and celebrate and display again and again and again the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every day actually just takes down a different aspect of the gospel and how to go through that. And so we all can be understanding of what we're talking about. What's the gospel? 
what are we doing? How do we go? What is the structure? Well, quite quickly, but yet hugely, we begin with God. The gospel always begins with God. God's holy and he's righteous and he's our loving creator who commands that we obey him. And all of his commands are good for us. All of his commands are loving commands that if we obey, we have blessing. But we as man are sinful and disobedient. We we're rebellious in our hearts. We don't want to do what God wants. We want to do what we want. And so we create our own way of living. We live by our own way of doing things, our own authority, thereby making us objects of God's wrath because we've sinned against him as our creator. Then we come to Christ. Begin with God, go to man and look at us. Then we come to Christ and say, but we have a loving God who sent his son to this earth to live a perfect life, obedient to his father. He died a horrific death on the cross in our place, taking our sin upon himself and then rising again the third day. And now it comes to response. We have to respond to that, not simply just listening to it and say, oh, that's a great story. But no, there's a response that needs to come from from within us and that's a response by faith, a response of repenting of our sins, saying, I'm sorry for my sins, I repent of my sins. Forgive me, God. But then it's also experiencing the promise of the Holy Spirit that comes to live inside of us and gives us power to live the life that God's called us to live for the rest of our days on this earth as well as for eternity. That's what we rehearse. And it's amazing, amazing to see year after year. But even this is, this is how children's ministry happens too. The curriculum that we use in children's ministry is called God's Story. And it actually is a... Uh, it's, it, Sister Church within Sovereign Grace Children's Ministry pastor wrote this curriculum. We love it. It's great. But every Old Testament story asks the question, where is Jesus? Every New Testament story asks the question, where is the gospel? So we're always rehearsing the gospel. Now, as a church, that's what we want to be about. Because it's very easy to find something new and fascinating to talk about, a little nugget in Scripture that we've never seen before. Ooh, let me bring this to you. But we want to be a church that celebrates the gospel. We want to be gospel-centered. You've probably heard that many times uh, in different contexts and in different varieties within the church. But what does gospel-centered mean? I would say it's quite, this is just a quick definition of what I would uh, categorize as being gospel-centered. The core of our discipleship is the journey into the infinite fathoms of the wonder and grace of the glorious gospel. Being gospel-centered is a journey into the infinitude of all that God is in being holy, loving, and righteous, and creating us, and we rebelling against him, him sending his son to die on a cross for our sins in our place, and us responding by faith to say, God, I want you, I want to live for you. And we rehearse that. For us as a church, we rehearse that. We want to be rehearsed that. We want to have that journey as part of our uh, congregational makeup, part of our congregational DNA, We want to be rehearsing the gospel because it doesn't ever get old, does it? Because it's infinite and it's deep. Now, for for us to understand, gospel-centeredness leads to gospel transference. We want to transfer the gospel. Vacation Bible School is about gospel transference. Children's ministry, youth ministry is about gospel transference. We want the next generation to know the gospel, to know the gospel. Not simply a, a mental agreement, but, and, and we also understand that family is about gospel transference. But 
gospel transference is not restricted to those three categories. It's not only happening within the family, only happening within children's ministry, only happening within Vacation Bible School. Gospel transference is the duty and responsibility of everyone in the church. Some are called to do it by instruction. Heed that call. Feel the spirit on you, heeding that call. Some are called to do it by instruction. All of us are called to do it by example. All of us are called to live lives in proximity with the next generation so we can be able to provide an example for them of a faith response of us saying, I'm just in awe every day of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This year's VBS theme came from Psalm 34, 8. So if you want to turn to Psalm 34 right now, and, and particularly the aspect in the first part of that verse, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. We wanted to be able to come with a an understanding that when we, when we come to God, it's not simply something, it's, he's not just an object for us to turn up in the air and look at all the different facets and turn over and, and be just enamored with the object. What we're wanting to do is like a candy bar. If I was to tell you, hey, a Reese's peanut butter cup tastes like this, it's, look, some of your mouths are already salivating because you know exactly what it tastes like. But if we just come and say, oh, look, here's the, uh, here's the chocolate, and it's good, and uh, it's got peanut butter in it, and uh, chocolate and peanut butter, they taste kind of cool together, that's it. Now, we want to say, no, we want to talk about it in such a way that whets the appetite, that says, ooh, I kind of would like one of those right now. Feeling a little sluggish, a little pep me up there, that'd be nice. We want to taste God and transfer it, invite those to come, invite those that are around us to come and taste and see that the Lord is good as we've understood him to be. Psalm 34 is about transferring the fear of God. We could also say it's about transferring the gospel. In particular, it's about a father passing on knowledge and experience of God to the next generation. This is written by King David, preferably to his sons, maybe his son Solomon. We look at David's life, he, he had some mess-ups as a dad. And he kind of rescued it, in a way, with Solomon. And then was able to go to Solomon. I mean, with his other sons, we find in 1 Kings particularly that he didn't, he didn't want to cross his son. He never wanted to ask the, the motivational questions of, why are you doing that? He was afraid of doing that. But with Solomon, he, he's there preparing him and is able to tell him, show yourself a man. Show yourself that. Well, he's instilling something within his son. So this is a father passing on knowledge and experience, not simply just a head knowledge, but an experience to the next generation. This being Father's Day, we'll dig into the psalm and look for, uh, we'll look for, look into it with fathers in mind, uh, but the whole assembly of believers has quick and meaningful application with what we're gonna talk about. So though this might be looking and addressing this toward fathers, we wanna be always open-eared to what the Spirit would say to us. But let's read Psalm 34, follow. So we'll start in verse, uh, in verse one. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. 
this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity, this holy moment for us to be able to come to you, so many of us, without the fear of condemnation, because we have trusted in you. Lord, we ask, we we set ourselves before you, particularly, Lord, as fathers, we set ourselves before you and say, Lord, show me yourself. Remind me of your fatherhood. Remind me of how you father me so I can experience that. I can taste it and see it and know its goodness. And Lord, change us today. And we ask that the fruit of the change would happen and be visible in our children. But that's why we want to know you. We want to pass this on. And we want to pass something on that's worth living for. So we set ourselves and ask for your spirit's illumination. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 34 is actually broken into two parts. The first part, verses 1 through 7, are are basically a psalm of thanksgiving where David is saying, I was in trouble, God delivered me, and I'm really thankful for that. And then the last part from, uh, well, the next section from verse 8 all the way through verse 22, we have an invitation. There's an invitation, but also a teaching happening where here David is saying, look, I've experienced something from the Lord. Now come, experience it for yourself, but as you're experiencing, be looking for this. And you can see that what he's teaching in the come, O children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. He's inviting the children to come and what? experience this, but be understanding of what you're getting ready to experience. And we need to be able to do that ourselves. See, this whole psalm is born out of experience. A lot of times as dads, we get, we get I think, real too comfortable with just the teaching dynamic, and we lose an aspect of the experience that's supposed to precede and give, really give life to the teaching. It's easy for us to slip into those patterns because we're tired, Things don't happen, right? We've got work-related issues and family issues that are really odd, but, but it's in those contexts that the Lord is calling for us to experience him and pass that on. See, 
I believe experience is the tipping point for gospel transference. The tipping point, think of a, a big, huge boulder at the top of a mountain. You, you've got it on the edge, and there's just one last movement and one last push of momentum to be able to get that boulder to roll down the other side. The tipping point, tipping into gospel transference, our experience of who God is, is that tipping point. Earlier in the 2000s, a man named Mark, uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called The Tipping Point, and really it's a study in social epidemics. He was really looking at why do things become popular? Why is it that, and it really takes in the law of the few, everything starts with very little. We know the story of Bill Gates and Facebook guys. We know those stories. They start in their dorm rooms, and, and then all of a sudden it proliferates into billions and billions of dollars. So he's looking at why do, why do people buy that pair of shoes, not that pair of shoes? Why Sesame Street... It, um, popular. What, what's the, so he's looking at these things, and he actually looks down, and he says, for a social epidemic to start, he, to start, he breaks it down into three categories. You need three types of people for a social epidemic to start. The first thing you need is connectors. These are the people that know everybody. You've got, you, you're in coming contact with somebody, and it doesn't take you a few degrees of separation to find somebody that, in New Orleans this happens all the time, because we all know each other, and we, somebody went to school with somebody, and we can figure that out. But more, more precisely, all of us in this church, you, where do you go to church? Oh, I go to Lafayette Christian Center. It's the new one on the end of Avengers. Yeah, everybody have the lorries in mind yet? Do you know? <laughs> connectors. They connect. You need, need connectors for social epidemics. You also need salesmen. You need those who are so engaged in what they're doing that they're persuasive. They're going to persuade others simply by their excitement, their enthusiasm over something, whether they bought it, whether they love it. You've got to experience this. You come, you come away from these people and you feel like, my life is lacking unless I have what you're talking about. But interestingly, the third thing you need is a maven. Now, a maven is it's a Yiddish word meaning one who accumulates knowledge. These are, in a, a social epidemic Context. These are the people that study all the food prices in different uh, stores, and they know where to get the milk for the cheapest. I know that. Save a lot. Two ninety-five. Because <laughs> you do save a lot. Look, we, we go through four or five gallons of milk a week, so I'm all about finding the cheapest. I can't stand paying twenty-five cents more than that. But you need these babies. They, they they're so about information. They're so about. Here, this is what we need to do, and we accumulate information, and they're passing on that information. But Malcolm Gladwell says it like this. It's, they're not, first of all, he says they're not passive about information. They want to tell you about it. And then he says it like this. To be a maven is to be a teacher, but it's also even more emphatically to be a student. Mavens are really information brokers, sharing and trading what they know. I think for gospel transference within our families, dads, we need to be mavens. We need to be those that are saying, I want to be a student of God. I want to be freshly experiencing who he is, so that's the life I pass on. That's the, it's, it's the tipping point. And then what we have to remember is that, you know, social epidemics, and the tipping point goes through this, social epi- epi- easy for me to say, social epidemics catch because the connectors, the salesmen, and the mavens all have a message that people care about. You know, we have that, the guarantee of all guarantees with the gospel. We have Isaiah 55, 11 that says God's word goes out and accomplishes what he intends, and it never returns to him without doing that. 
Jesus in John 12, 32 said, what? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. We have a guarantee. So the message, the factor, really gospel transference is not so much about the message, it's about the messenger. And are we going to be the students to be able to say, I, I want to be growing in my knowledge. I want to be growing in my experience of who God is. There's a, a popular cultural idiom. You've probably heard experience is the best teacher. Uh, I think when we look at Psalm 34, what we're actually finding when, in verse 11, when, when David is saying, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I think what we're finding is that those who have the experience are the best teachers. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to God himself and how we relate to him, how we live for him, those who have the experience of the best teachers, well, when you have a question, oh, man, I'm going through something in my life, a, a trial, something, something's not working right, usually, typically, you're thinking of somebody who's already been in that place that you can get advice from. Families have that context right there. Those who have tasted and seen the goodness of God, that it is indeed good. Call for others to do the same. Now, if we haven't tasted and seen that the Lord's good, all we're trying to do is pass on an empty box. And kids always sniff out fakes. They always do. We, we, we know that. And fathers have the unique privilege to pass on <clears throat> the sweet morsels of the gospel to the ones that God has blessed them to have in their homes the sweet delicacies of Jesus who is the bread of life. And we can taste of that forgiveness and we can pass that on. We can taste of the holiness and the righteousness of God. We can taste of his presence and understanding that we are not condemned, but yet we can be in his presence unashamed and with great joy. Why do I get to do that? Well, let me dive into the fathoms to find out so I can experience that, be able to pass that on to my children. Uh, three things I think that we can draw out of Psalm 34 for fathers to posture us uh, in a way to transfer the gospel in our homes, transfer that to our children. I think the first that we're seeing is uh, in our speech. In verse 1, here David says, starts off, I will bless the Lord at all time. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And then verse 13, he actually pinpoints it. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. There's an aspect, especially with fathers, that we, we create an atmosphere in our homes by our speech. You create an atmosphere by talking too much. And you create an atmosphere by talking too little. You create an atmosphere by how you say things. All of us, we do that. We create atmosphere. Now, when we're creating, think about atmosphere. Atmosphere is something that, it, uh, the difference between the atmosphere of the Earth and the atmosphere of Mars is that the atmosphere of Earth is life-sustaining. The atmosphere of Mars is not. And we, with our speech, we, we are called, we, there's blessings and cursings that come from us. Now, we need to make sure that we're discerning enough to be able to bless the right things and curse the right things. There, there needs to be an aspect to where we're blessing what's worthy. We're blessing love. We're blessing obedience. We're blessing our children when they've done, done wrong. There, there's instruction that takes place, but there's a blessing and a love that occurs there. Now, and now, here's, I think, where we need to juxtapose that. 
more than blessing a sporting accomplishment or more than blessing a political accomplishment. What are our kids hearing from us? How are they hearing it? And I think it, it, it means cursing the right things. There and Husbands can curse in their homes without using curse words. It comes from tone, it comes from posture, it comes from all the nonverbal cues that we give off. Because a child, a wife, can be very in touch with my disdain more than my love, with me ever having to say a word. That's what we have to pay attention to. Now, we are called as dads to say, no, that's wrong. Now, when we're calling something wrong, we're saying, no, that actually, it's birthed of evil, and it's going to distract you from the gospel. Therefore, it's cursed. We're not going to do that. Now, you don't have to approach it that way, but that's, that's the essence of what's going on. When we're drawing lines, say, no, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We've got to point on some, we've got, we've got to, on the other side, be able to say, no, we're not going to go that way because we've chosen the Lord. Now, we also have to be very aware that we, our children are not evil. Our wives are not evil. And we need to curse evil rather than our children or our wives, having our kids more, more aware of our irritation with them than of a love and a forgiveness that comes from God the Father that we've experienced and now get to pass on. Also, there is a, a speech that we're supposed to have that's not deceitful. We need to speak the truth. We need to be training in the truth, and there needs to be no lying. You know, as I thought about that, I seen to do, is that understood that we're not supposed to lie? And I thought, no, I don't know if it's understood. Because I think we just get comfortable with things. We get comfortable with the way we do things. We get comfortable with what we're looking at, what we're doing, and we don't want anybody else to know, even those in our family. No lying, no deceit. We must speak the truth, but speak it in love. When our words are not seasoned with love, but maybe they have the seasoning of anger and irritation, contempt, I think we rob God of his rightful place on the throne of our houses. See, it's easy for us to slip into being the judge. I'm, I'm so guilty of this. I just want, okay, lay the case before me. I choose you. And then people are crying and they're running around. What do I want in that moment? I just want you to be quiet. Just leave me alone. You're too loud. It's weird. I had a, I have a commercial driver's license. You need to get a hearing test whenever you renew your license. What? You need to get a hearing test when you renew your license. And I actually was doing the hearing screening, and I am sensitive to high-pitched noises. I told the lady who was doing the hearing, I said, well, that's pretty interesting since I live with a lot of females. Hmm. So that's my excuse. What? Well, my hearing, it hurts. It hurts. It's got to be quiet. But you know, in those moments, I have to be very, very careful. And this is, this is something I've been very convicted of this year. Uh, and it's, it's I, I pray it's getting better, but I'm just not sure yet. That in those moments, uh, my children are more in tune with my speech, my way of doing things, my desire for life to be, than they are with God's desire and me walking under that authority. 
I want to be able to speak in a way that lets them know I'm under authority too. I'm, the buck doesn't stop with me. It stops with me in a lot of things, but it doesn't stop because I'm one who's under authority too. And I want to speak in a way that causes them to understand that and look to God as well. Now, the, the, the speech in creating this atmosphere, our love that we're communicating verbally and non-verbally. I'm, I'm, I'm notorious in my... I'll correct one of the girls <laughs> and think, oh, that was so gentle. Uh, that was probably my best correction of them. It's great. Now, 30 seconds later, I hear somebody crying in their room. I'll look over at Kathy. Did I do that? And she'd say, it was your tone. I said, my tone? <laughs> I thought I had good tone. I thought I was right on pitch trying to get that in but it's just so much <laughs> I can make all the women in my house cry if I wanted to <laughs> and I don't know how I do it but I can do it because it's just so bizarre but in those moments you know I, I am more in, in touch in that moment with saying whoa I need to communicate my love right now more than anything else now Owen I don't care about him feeling that yet I just want him to obey Toughen up, kid. Mom can't tell me how to talk to you. Because you're like me. How we speak in our homes directly affects the growth rate within our homes. H. Clay Trumbull says this, in order to secure a right home atmosphere for their children, parents must themselves be right not be right in corrective, no, but be right in righteousness, right. They must guard against poisoning the air of the home with unloving words or thoughts, against chilling it with unsympathetic manners or overheating it with exciting ways, against disturbing its peaceful flow with restlessness, with fault findings or with bursts of temper. The life of Christ must be experienced by us so we can love in this way. We have to be understanding and a student of how God loves us, how he fathers us. God, how do you speak to me? Because we all know when we, uh, you know, we say goofy things like, man, the Lord really hit me over the head with that one. Did he really? No. You know what happens when the Lord's convicting us? It's that soft, still spirit nag that says, I want you to change. It doesn't say, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You know what it says? There's life. Repent. Trust me by faith again. And it starts way in here. And I guarantee it's soft. But yet we come out with a boom to letting our kids feeling dad's voice. May we be positioned to hear and feel the love of the Father so we can represent that, model that experience for our children. Why? So they can hear God's voice. Because when we hear it in our hearts, it's a boom, isn't it? We know God just spoke to me. We want our kids to experience that. So our speech needs to be seasoned. Our second point to look at is joyful humility. Look at verse two. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. In verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord 
heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. What are we, this is not a boasting that, you know, Christians, as Christians, we're supposed to boast. It's not about ourselves. We're supposed to boast on God. Look at all that God is. Look at what he's done. We have to live for him. But when it comes to man, it's very easy for us to want to sneak in our own boasting into that, sneak in our own, just our own personness. Just honor me because I'm me. But when we do that, it's, it's a pride and arrogance that really God opposes. But there, there's an aspect that we need to recognize and, and examine our own hearts. Am I boasting upon the Lord? Am I boasting in all that he is and all that he does for me? Am I a poor man in spirit? Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the earth, Jesus said. Am I a poor man in my house? Or do I kind of want everybody to know I'm something else? The, the joyfully humble dad is one who boasts in the Lord and recognizes his poor position. And I think that occurs probably in, in different contexts. But for us to look, uh, draw out from this psalm is first, I think that, that joyful humility needs to come when we have fears. And there's usually, there are times when as dads, as fathers, we have fears. We just don't know what's going to happen. We don't know the answer. Instead of trying to put on a front to our kids, we can just be able to say, you know what? I don't know. And that's not an I don't know that's a yes later. That's a I really don't know. Asking our kids for prayer. Because I, my concern would be for me, and again, this is, this is all birthed out of my own season of who am I as a dad? What am I building? What am I doing? But I have a concern for myself, and you might share this, that I can be so skillful in instructing my kids, but when, when I'm not honest with them and when I'm fearing something, what I'm actually doing is, is I'm cutting off. Uh, all they're doing is feeling my stress, and I'm cutting them off from me in that moment to where I don't want to be around them, and all they feel from dad is stress. And they know something's not right. We all can feel that awkwardness. When we were kids in our homes, you could feel that awkwardness, and we feel that awkwardness sometimes in our own homes. But there's an aspect. If, I am, if I'm not just humble with my fears, and look, Daddy doesn't know. Will you pray for me? Pray for Daddy. I know I've been short. I, I, I apologize and repent of that many times in my house. I was irritated in my, in my response to you. Please forgive me, but pray for Daddy. I'm just, I'm just a little stressed right now. Things are going on. There are no details. Okay, okay, <laughs> usually is the response. How about also within trials, being joyfully humble in trials. Verse 19, this is very interesting and, and something to delve into at another time, but for us to touch on it. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Did you catch that? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. This isn't an affliction that somebody pokes you with a fork. This is an affliction, a life-altering something that's happened in your life that maybe you don't know how to get out of. Maybe it's been done to you. Maybe it's a result of your own sin. You don't know what's going on. Many Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And look at this, verse 21. Affliction will slay the wicked. It's very easy for us to look, as Christians, as believers, to look at other people who don't have a relationship with Christ or not saved and see that they're succeeding in ways that we are really jealous and envious about. Well, look at them. Their life's Psalm 73. Look at them. Their life's easy. Mine's hard. 
Now, what we just found right here in these two verses, afflictions are everybody's common denominator. We all will suffer affliction. Here's the key, verse 19. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. People who have no relationship with Christ have no hope. But we, yet though we, though I am, though I, he slayed me, I will hope. There's a hope that comes from inside. Why? Because I've experienced God. I've experienced the gospel. I've experienced the presence of God in me so strongly. I know, Lord, if you take everything away, I know you, can't t- you won't take your presence away from me. And that way, everywhere I go, I'm in your presence. The key to our trials, victory in our trials, is not because of what we do to get out of them. It's because of our position in Christ. It's all that God has done, and we find that reminder again and again and again in the gospel. Now, as fathers, we, uh, we need to be living in such a way that models this for our children. Because here's the reality. Our kids are going to face affliction. And every dad in here never wants that to happen. The way that you're able to minister hope for a child who's going through an affliction is to have already experienced the deliverance and already experienced the hope to say, God, I have, it breaks my heart to see this happening to my child. But I remember when I was in this, delivered me. I remember back, it was so thick, it was so real. God, do it for my son. Do it for my daughter. And we live in a way that models that. It's able to come alongside them and help them hear God's voice. Understand and experience God for themselves and their own hearts. And I think joyful humility, I think, would also have its place in our lives, in our weaknesses. I've come to a place, and I know I'm just at the foothills of experiencing this, but I am so sick and tired of my weaknesses because they bump into everything. They affect everything about me, everything in my marriage, everything in my parenting. I'm just tired of it. And over and over and over again, I went through a season this year. This has been a really, I haven't really, I haven't understood yet what this year for me has been for my parenting, because I don't, I don't think the Lord's over, and it's finished, the work's not done yet, but I'm really looking for the peaceful fruits of righteousness, so I can look back and say, oh, God, that's what you did, but I'm kind of still in it. <laughs> but there, there's an aspect that I was wrestling, just saying, Lord, I, I remember telling the Lord, I'm just sick of me. I'm sick of my weaknesses, because they seem to bump into everything, and they mess up communication, and they mess up what I'm seeking to do, and oh, you know what? the Lord yet again, yet again, reminded me of the gospel. It also taken me to 2 Corinthians, the end of 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, when Paul is recounting the thorn in his side. He asked three times that the Lord would take it. What, what was God's response? You're weak. Yes, you're weak. But my grace is sufficient for you. But here's the next step. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Our weaknesses are the seedbed for the Spirit's power. Now, if you ask me, I don't like that deal. But here's what I've tasted and seen. It's good. 
It's good when God does that. Why? Because it models, one, it connects us to God and we love him. We experience that love. We're able to model that and pass that, transfer that to the children that he's blessed us with. Joyfully humble when we've sinned. Sinned against our family. Sinned in a way that incorporated our family that they need to know we are sorry and we ask them, please forgive me. Oh, wonderful love and winning over of hearts. Oh, man, asking forgive, forgiveness in your homes captures everybody's heart for you. There's a proverb that says the wise captures souls. You know how that happens? Ask forgiveness because you're asking something from them. Look, I'm sorry, I'm just dad and you know me. No, nah, it's not an apology. Yeah, you can be sorry. But when I go to my children and say, please forgive me, they have to respond. They have to respond with, no, I'm not going to forgive you. But they always respond with, yeah, of course, Daddy. And we have that experience ongoing. We, that, need, that experience needs to have a place in our homes as we pursue joyful humility. And our third mark to posture us to look at would be holy ambition. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me, delivered me from all my fears those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. There, this psalm, in many different words here, uh, calls to take and seek and pursue. Our lives as dads must be marked by pursuit of God. Him as our greatest aim. John Newton, the writer of the song Amazing Grace, said this. The Lord has given his people a desire and will aiming at great things. Without this, they would be unworthy of the name of Christians. But they cannot do as they would. Their best desires are weak and ineffectual. Not absolutely so. For he who works in them to will enables them in a measure to do likewise. Listen to this. But in comparison with the mark at which they aim. Where's your aim? If I were to interview your children... See, what's your daddy most passionate about? What would they say? They probably wouldn't be able to um, success, providing for his family. They probably wouldn't come out. Sometimes what would probably come out is he just feels like he's never there. Even when he's home, he feels like he's never there. What are we, what are we aiming at? Well, I feel like I, I'm just, I always interrupt him. He's always telling me to be quiet so he can watch the news or watch his program on TV. He's shooing me away from the computer. Just don't feel. That's usually how it comes out from kids, but what we have to investigate in our own lives is what's our aim as fathers? Is it success? Is it to one day be your own boss? Is it, it really in providing? You know, I think we kind of escape. I just want to provide for my family. I think that's a cop-out a lot of times because what we're saying is I love money and I want it. But we, we, say, we drive ourselves, well, I want to provide a quality of life for my kids so they can have that. That's admirable. But making it your aim becomes idolatry. And we're living for something that's not, I think the, it's most probably, I, I don't know why I thought this, but I thought this uh, last night. Remember my dad telling me uh, years ago that when he, when we were young, my brother and me when we were young, he said he had no savings whatsoever. And you know what? I never knew that. And I didn't care. I had my dad. That was pretty cool. He coached me in baseball. 
that was pretty fun. And I have to remind myself, my kids don't care. You know, the only, the only people that care about making more money is the IRS. They really want you to make a lot more money. Please make more money. Your kids are not standing there saying, look, Dad, I just don't have all the toys. Look, can we have a four-wheeler? I mean, what's up, Dad? Come on. Slacker. Why don't you work? <sighs> Get off your tush in front of the TV and work. My kids don't do that. The New Testament gives us a very clear description of what our aim should be, and it's God alone. Ephesians 4, 1, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Colossians 1, 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Our aim is to increase in the knowledge of God. As we increase in that knowledge, we will experience it and then bear fruit for our families to enjoy and taste of themselves and see God as great and huge. Oh, that's what we want. But this holy ambition, it, it pursues the depths of the gospel to benefit in its riches. Dave Harvey in his book, Rescuing Ambition, says we pursue what we value. What do you value? He says, really, look, look where you spend, what do you spend time doing? What's the most of your efforts going toward? That's usually where your thoughts go, where your dreams go. That's usually what you value. A holy ambition prizes Christ above all things. And here, holy ambition perseveres to transfer the gospel to the next generation. And you're never too far back to start. Let me tell you a story of Team Hoyt. Can we have a picture of them? It's a father and son. Father is Dick Hoyt. The son is Rick Hoyt. Rick was born in 1962 uh, with cerebral palsy. His umbilical cord was actually uh, cut off oxygen flow to his brain during labor and delivery. And so this was the outcome. But Team Hoyt began in 1977 when Rick, the son, became inspired by an article on racing he saw in a magazine. Dick Hoyt was not a runner and was nearly 37 years old. After their race, Rick said, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. After their initial five-mile run, Dick began running every day with a bag of cement in the wheelchair because Rick was at school studying, unable to train with him. As of February 2008... The Hoyts had completed, had competed in 958 endurance events, including 65 marathons and six Ironman triathlons. 2008, the dad was 68. They had run the Boston Marathon 25 times. It's an amazing story. During the, the triathlon aspect, uh, Dick would be swimming and he had a rope tied to him with a boat and Rick was in the boat, the inflatable boat, and they swam the three, over three miles. Got out, put him on a special seat right in front of the bike, had a little windshield on it, rode, and then ran, pushing him in the wheelchair. Do you know what I just look at this picture. When I look at that dad, you know what I don't hear? 
you know what, I just come home, I just want some time to myself. Just some, some me time, some down time. I don't hear him saying, I just, I want to read more of the Bible, I just, I, just, my, I get distracted. I just can't find a place, you know, work, really stressed out. But yet, we got excuses aplenty. But here's what we have to hear. See, this dad heard his son say something. See, this happened. Rick's parents were very astute. They, they were encouraged when he was born to put him in a hospital and just really pay no attention to him ever again. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. They actually started seeing that he was picking up on things. He was picking up on reading and picking up. He would follow them across the room as they walked back and forth. He was doing things. And he, he, they persuaded the school system to put him in, in school. And they tailored things around him. And that's how he was able to read to find a magazine, a running magazine for guys in a wheelchair. Hey, I want to run. They had already seen some things. So when his dad heard this, he said, all right, not a runner. Well, son, you know, I don't run. I just don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm old now, 37. I'm old. Yeah, I just, you didn't hear that. But what are our kids saying? We have to discern this. Our kids are saying, Dad, will you teach me about God? Because when I hear you teach about him, I want to love him more. I feel free in the love of Christ when you lead me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And pass it on. Take steps of faith. And faith, with faith is risk. Faith is stepping out. In our home, we pray for the lost all the time. And it's not always people we're praying for because we lose items all the time. But we pray for the lost. And you know what? God answers. Just last week, we went on a vacation a couple weeks ago, and I was uh, Molly and Amelie's softball coach, and we forgot the bat at the playground. And we're looking all over the house, looking in the car. Man, it's not there. Okay, well, we just need to go. Let's go. We get there. There's the bat. Over a week, a week and a half, been through rain, everything. There's the bat hanging on the fence. And they had two other games while we were gone. We're getting the, getting the car, going home. I said, Molly, can you believe the bat was there? She said, yeah. God answered my prayer. I prayed that the bat would be there. I said, that's awesome. <laughs> in our freezer, in our garage, we have a snowball about this big a size. It is from December 11th, 2008. You know Why? Because two days before, Amelie prayed that it would snow. You know what? God answered her prayer. And I'm saving that snowball for when she's in her moment of affliction. I said, look, Peanut, you got a snowball. God heard your prayer. But let's, let's have God hear our prayers as well. Do you want to come pray for the dads, Keith?
Matthew, you come in, buddy. Oh. Well, this morning was just start to finish a wonderful and appropriate setting for all of us as fathers. We started with one of the things that all of us as fathers love the most, our own children, and watching their lives and ended with what would be the most important thing that we could ever do in the lives of our children. And that would be to transfer the gospel to their lives. And Father's Day is a, is a wonderful day, but if you're, if you're a normal dad, and Jeff touched on a few of these dimensions, if you're a normal dad today, There'll be a moment when you're going to be aware of how your children are relating to you. And there'll probably be a moment when you'll be very aware of how deficient you have been as a dad. And so even, even hearing Jeff share about his own experience and the things he wrestles through, uh, you always want to be more to your children than you seem to be able to pull off. At least that's how I feel in being a dad. And the one thing, I think if you're a dad here today and you have tasted the gospel in your own life, the one thing you don't want to screw up is transferring the gospel into their lives. So great subject, and all of us are on board, and all of us at the same time are feeling like, I know I'm not doing that well enough either. So I think we all heard, we, we are given this incredible responsibility and privilege to transfer the gospel to our children. But what I want to pray for us today, I want to have all the dads receive prayer for this morning, is for God in our lives to be the one that we are tasting and seeing a fresh impartation from God for us as dads to taste and see. It is in tasting and seeing, as Jeff said, that we get motivation and passion to impart the message of the gospel with our words and with our lives. So the greatest gift we could receive, dads, and I'm here to receive this gift, is you know, I, I want to taste God afresh. I want to see God in my own life, in my own eyes. And I need that. You need that this morning. Remember the story about the woman who sat at Jesus' feet, weeping in tears, passionately devoted to him. And how Jesus described the difference between the religious man who had invited him to his home and this woman who was passionately giving herself to the Savior. He said, you know, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. See, the fruit of tasting forgiveness is doing stuff and living life. So maybe some of us this morning as dads just need to taste again who God is to us. His love, His forgiveness. I thought Jeff was going to title the message today as he got into the joyful dimensions Tasting and seeing. Here's what it can do for you as dad, since we're in Candyland today. 
can change you from sour skittle to Jolly Rancher. <laughs> so it may be that we just need something from God. Some of us as dads need to go from sour skittle to Jolly Rancher around the home. And, and it won't happen just because we tell you, hey, how about you quit sucking like a lemon and look like a Jolly Rancher? It won't happen because of that. It's going to happen because you taste and see something of God that causes you to respond to that in your home. So can all the dads this morning stand up? Stand up right where you are. I'd like all the, we don't have too many of the kids that are in here, but if we could have wives and family members that are seated near the dads, and, and maybe you're here this morning and you could help out with some dads that aren't going to have a, a family member around them. You're a single person here and your dad's not here this morning. Maybe if you could get around somebody who doesn't have family. If you're here this morning and you don't have family with you, raise your hand real quick. I want to send some folks to you. Can you look around? Those of you who aren't with your families this morning, you, your dad's not here, can you find one of these guys? Keep your hand up for a moment. Go ahead, get up right now and go find these guys. You see their hand is up for all kinds of reasons. Dads are here today and their families are not with them. All right. Well, family members, if you are nearby, if you will lay your hands upon the dads that are gathered sitting with you. Let's, let's go before the Lord this morning. Lord, I, I stand with these men, Lord, thanking you. for the privilege of having others relate to us as fathers. Lord, it is an overwhelming joy. And Lord, it can also be simply overwhelming to us. For, Lord, there would be nothing in the midst of our lives, busy and complicated and ambitious, as Jeff said, sometimes in the wrong categories. Lord, there would be nothing in our heart of hearts that we desire more than to transfer to our children a life filled with true, genuine joy. For them to be able to live lives that really mattered in the end, for them not to be drawn off the, the path into seasons of regret and harm in their lives. And Lord, ultimately, ultimately, Lord, amidst all the trappings of life, Lord, the one desire that we have for our children is that they would know you. And Lord, like so many tasks, uh, Lord, this seems beyond our abilities. Truly it is. So, Lord, this morning, God, we 
take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Lord, as fathers, Lord, we run to you, our high tower, our stronghold. And we seek from you what we do not have in ourselves. Lord, we are most aware of our weakness and our failures. But Lord, in the shadow of your wing, Lord, we are aware of a greater power and a greater tenacity and a greater sense of your purpose for our children. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness to our children. Lord, thank you to your desire to see them come to know you with a desire that's greater than our own. God, thank you that you are unstained, unpolluted. Sin does not touch you. You are not weak. So, Lord, all the fathers here today, Lord, we look to you to be in our children's lives of the ultimate influence, the ultimate persuasion. And Lord, we know that you desire for us to walk in a capacity where you do a lot of that through us. So Lord, as we desire to be fathers, to impart to our children, uh, Lord, that which can only come from you, Lord, this morning we ask that you would grace us with tasting and seeing that you are good. Lord, may we be motivated and provoked, Lord, to give what Jeff was describing, Lord, to give words that are seasoned, words that are filled with redemption and care and love and correction and instruction. Lord, words that we receive from you, God, let us taste and see your words to us. Lord, as we are to establish an atmosphere in our home that both is reflective of our words and also one that is joyfully humble, Lord, would you allow us to taste and to see your joyful humility that we might be provoked by your example in our own lives. Lord, as you are the living embodiment of holy ambition. You came to this world, emptied yourself, and took on the form of a servant. What an ambition you had to impart to us life and that more abundantly. Lord, may we taste and see of your holy ambitions so that we might be for our children a model and example of those who are wholly ambitious in our lives for what matters most. So, Lord, for all the fathers here, Lord, today... But every day, Lord, give us the grace of tasting and seeing you so that we might be affected in such a way that our children will taste and see you in our own lives. Lord, give us the grace of gospel transference. What we have received, Lord, may we joyfully, joyfully give to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I bless you guys.